Okay. So uh, you've already heard a couple of references to this. This is classic medicine pattern recognition, right? If you're in a beach resort and someone's wearing an uncomfortable looking tie with their neck too tight, that's probably a hepatologist because uh, there's something about our field that this is what we do and uh, very hard to explain. Okay. So, we're going to talk about liver disease and liver fibrosis and, uh, and get you to at least start thinking about the patients with decompensated disease. Um, and uh, finally, to at least be aware, when do you need to call a hepatologist? When do you call a transplant center rather than trying to do it on your own? So that's the, uh, the focus of this. So let's start with this. Um, fibrosis or scarring in the liver comes from many sources. Um, and the one that we're talking about today is hepatitis C. But uh, we have hepatitis A, B, C, D, E, probably some others that uh, remain to have nice alphabet names. We have NAFLD, NASH, fat in the liver causing liver disease. We'll take a look at that. We have alcohol causing fat in the liver and also by some other mechanisms causing injury. The drugs we use to treat HIV in some cases can cause liver injury. Uh, patients have inherited metabolic disorders and uh, actually the genes for, for Various common liver diseases exist at least in one allele, meaning from one parent, in about 7 to 8% of the U.S. population. And while it may not be a cause of severe liver disease by itself, when you combine it with something else, like alcohol or hepatitis C, you end up with increased rates of liver injury. Uh, patients get immune disorders. They have what's called cholestatic disorders of the liver. Certain things like hypervitaminosis A is like vitamin A is a signal to the stellate cells, the cells in the liver that make scar to say, turn on, wake up and start making scar. And so even patients that uh, may think they're taking megavitamins and doing good may in fact be causing injury in their liver. All of these things lead to fibrosis or scarring, and we're actually going to look at that in liver histology so that you know what that means. Um, but the net effect of that is that it, when we talk about liver injury, we talk about the accumulation of scar causing physiologic changes that ultimately we identify as signs and symptoms of end-stage liver disease. Now, hepatologists, when they see a patient with abnormal liver tests, sort of divide their world into two big groups. One of those groups is patients with hepatocellular injury, and the other is with cholestatic injury. And we separate those by 
which liver enzymes are elevated. AST and ALT are serum transaminases. They're markers of liver cell injury with inflammation. Cholestatic injury is elevated bilirubin, alkaline phosphatase, and GGT. And those things generally don't mean that liver cells are dying. It means that, that bile and bile acids are not flowing correctly from liver cells out into the digestive tract. And some diseases give us a mixed picture with both things, but the starting place in understanding what's going on when you see a patient with abnormal liver tests isn't just to say, oh, they have hep C. It's to say, what type of liver disease is this? And then you begin to narrow down by specific testing where you're at. The other term that commonly comes into use is acute disease versus chronic disease. We're going to hear a case later about acute hepatitis C. But what is acute? Where do you draw the line in terms of time? And it's a, it's a rather arbitrary line. When I started in hepatology, uh, which is a really long time ago, that line was actually considered one year. But as we've gained knowledge about uh, clearance, particularly of viruses, um, we've come to understand that we're probably better off calling six months the line between an acute process and a chronic process. So anything that's been present less than six months, identified by elevated liver enzymes for that period, is an acute process, and beyond that is chronic. Now, when you see a patient, it may be the first time you see their abnormal liver enzymes. That doesn't mean that they haven't been chronic for the last 10 years, but uh, you should keep that, that distinction in mind because it may potentially influence some of your treatment decisions. And then there's the idea of what is normal. When do you start thinking about normal? And uh, this is a big issue because all of you have access to labs, and your labs, in a friendly, helpful manner, put little H's for high next to something that's abnormal. But when you leave here today, I want you to remember the lab is not your friend because the lab uses statistical measures to determine their normals. And laboratories for these tests determine their normals locally by one of typically two or three different methodologies, which they never tell you. You don't know what your laboratory does. In my institution, every two years, uh, they go to the executive health clinic and they take 100 consecutive samples from the executive health clinic on the assumption that executives are healthy and therefore that will define normal for all of the lab tests for the next two years. But the whole reason they're going to the executive health clinic is because they might have diseases that someone didn't identify and some of them in fact do. So, there's a little bit of a fallacy in how you define your normals in the first place. In a hospital I was at in Colorado many years ago, they went to young military recruits, and those were normal. So those were all 20-year-old men. How does that define normal in women? Does it? So what is normal? These numbers are generally considered normal. Anything above 30 for men 
and 19 for women is an abnormal ALT level and should make you think there's a liver disease going on here. And so that's often the starting place before someone even orders a hepatitis C test as a way of thinking about could this patient have hep C or some other liver disease. We also have to think about now how do we assess if there's fibrosis and of late even more interest in development of fat in the liver. So we're going to now take a look at that. So fibrosis is scar and the type of injury determines the pattern of that scar. For most diseases, the injury is homogeneous, meaning it occurs throughout the liver, relatively evenly distributed. Inflammation of the liver, meaning the infiltration of inflammatory cells which cause the injury in viral hepatitis, is transient. Fibrosis is plastic, but it's a very slow process. So if you cure a patient with hep C, the inflammation goes away within weeks to months, but the scar does not go away. And so we have scar sitting there for a period of years. It can go away, it will go away in many patients, we think, but that process is at least a five to 10 year window depending on their stage of disease, their genetics, other factors that may still be causing injury in that person's liver. So you need to kind of think about that distinction of inflammation versus scar. And you also need to be aware that cirrhosis overall is a histologic diagnosis. That doesn't mean you need to look at the liver histology to do liver biopsies in everyone, but the underlying understanding of liver disease is tied to the understanding of what actually constitutes the term cirrhosis. So it's not a clinical diagnosis, though many people in the US will say that if a patient has decompensated liver disease, which we'll define further in a few minutes, then that patient is cirrhotic. In other places in the world, that's clearly not the case. So if we were in the Nile River Valley, uh, there are tons of patients that get admitted to all of the hospitals every night with bleeding varices, and none of them are cirrhotic. And they have bleeding varices because they, they have non-cirrhotic portal hypertension associated with schistosomiasis. So different disease, different process, not every place in the world does does decompensated liver disease equal cirrhosis? This is a schematic diagram. I don't want you to focus on what the different stages look like. The take-home message here is that, that different places, different people have developed different scoring systems, and it's not enough to talk about a score, which you may talk about when you're describing stages of liver disease because there's different types of scores and you can see from the numbers on the bottom, they don't all line up with each other. So if you're going to talk about numbers and scores, you need to also say which system you're talking about. The most commonly 
used without reference is the Metavere system, which is a European system and is one, two, three, four. Um, but, uh, but if you're in the Midwest, the Bats Ludwig system from Mayo Clinic is by far the most commonly used. And if you're in the East, Northeast, people tend to use the Ishak system, and uh, Kamal Ishak was one of my mentors, so that's what I use when I think about how do you classify uh, uh, livers. You do need to specify, you do need to be aware of it, that they're not the same. Okay, so these are four different liver biopsies. And again, we're not gonna turn you into pathologists today, but there's just a couple of important take-home messages. The first is, in a liver biopsy, blue is bad. Blue is going to represent either inflammation or scar, fibrosis or collagen deposition. So this is a healthy, normal liver. And there's a tiny bit of blue here, and that's because there's a collagen matrix around blood vessels in the liver. Um, this is a stage two disease, metavere two disease. Portal areas are expanded. This is a, oh, we have a pointer, great. This is a three, so you have bridging, but not complete nodules. And this is cirrhosis, a liver lobule that's been completely surrounded by scar. So the neighborhood of the liver is divided into hundreds and hundreds of thousands of liver lobules. And when one lobule gets surrounded by scar, that's what cirrhosis is. Blood flow is altered. The alteration in blood flow leads to physiologic changes, which ultimately express themselves as clinical liver disease. Now, if you look at this, it seems very easy and very apparent. But the problem is that if you had a piece that was this big instead of this big or this big, you would call this one a stage three, a metavere stage three, not metavere stage four, which is cirrhosis. So you would undercall cirrhosis if your specimen on a liver biopsy is not big enough. And that's problematic because patients um, begin to develop significant portal hypertension at this stage and other risks, other complications that you don't want to miss. So because of the vagary of both liver biopsy and all of the other methods that follow liver biopsy as a way of avoiding liver biopsy, we tend to group these two stages together and simply call them advanced fibrosis or advanced fibrosis cirrhosis. So as we go through the day, you're gonna hear that term over and over again. In a patient with advanced fibrosis, we wanna do this. And this is what we're talking about. Patients whose livers look like one of these two things. Now, as with many things in life, size matters. And uh, this is from a national study uh, looking at classification of a treatment that was used to try and cause regression of cirrhosis. 
And uh, this biopsy on the left is one of mine. I'm very proud of it. Um, I like to do large liver biopsies, meaning I use a very large needle with a big throw, and I get big pieces, and it's easy to diagnose cirrhosis. This is one using a smaller needle, but they took more length so that they wouldn't miss cirrhosis because they have more representation across more portal areas, even though it's not as wide. And this is one from a very well-known center, uh, which we shouldn't mention, but it was Johns Hopkins, where, where they don't do liver biopsies by the docs that treat hepatitis. They send every patient to radiology to get a liver biopsy, and the radiologists give them a piece, but they don't know what the liver biopsy should look like, so they give them this, and then they undercall disease, and then they go even further, and they've written papers saying that liver biopsies don't work so well in our hands. Guess what? That's why. This versus this or this. So this is why liver biopsy, while it is the standard by which we measure things, is a little bit of a tarnished standard because like any test, you have to do it well. And if you can't do it well, you shouldn't do it because you make errors in judgment. Now, in recent years, some other technologies and methods have become available that let us get by without liver biopsy. So in my institution, 10 years ago, we did 2,000 biopsies a year. This past year, we did 220. And that difference is not that we're seeing less patients, but because we have other methodologies available. How many of you, by a show of hands, have access to transient elastography for your patients? So a handful has one of the methods. There's now three or four different types of machines. This is, uh, this is the uh, Echosens machine. The technology is transient elastography, but it's called FibroScan. Um, and uh, it involves sending a sound wave into the liver to cause a jiggle. So it's not an ultrasound, which is doing it for the purpose of taking a picture. Many of you probably don't remember in the old days before it came in the grocery store in cups, you used to have to make jello. You'd take a packet, you'd put it in boiling water, you'd stir it around and put it in the fridge. And if you took it out a few hours later at dinner time, you'd shake it. If you tapped the side, it would jiggle back and forth. If you left it uncovered in your refrigerator for a couple of days and you tapped the side, it would no longer jiggle. And if you tried to dig into it, it was like a crust on top because the water had evaporated out of it. It became more stiff. It's that principle that's used in transient elastography. It sends a sound wave into the liver to jiggle the liver. And it measures how long does it take to get a response back to that jiggle on a sensor probe. And uh, the stiffer the liver is, the uh, it changes the transmission characteristics going through it such that uh, here is a patient that is cirrhotic and the slope of this line 
is actually the speed of the jiggle, and it comes back much faster in a stiff liver, which is why the slope of the line goes that way, straight down. And so normal liver, cirrhotic liver. So this is an indirect measure, and, and yet it tells us that by having stiffness in the liver, we know that that probably is stiffness due to scar in the liver. And then we set values. Now, the values for cutoffs, if you have access to this, are not absolute. In fact, the FDA, when they approved this device, said you cannot use exact numbers. You need to apply, actually, judgment to your interpretation. So most places kind of start thinking that the patient is probably cirrhotic between 12.5 and 14 kilopascals, which is the unit of measure that's used in transient elastography. And you're in that F3 advanced fibrosis range when you're around 9 to whatever you're using as a cutoff. And if you're down below 7, you have little or no liver disease. You have none or maybe in that metavir F1 stage, and that's considered pretty mild disease and not generally associated with any immediate sequelae of at least liver disease. So that's, that's an early stage patient. Again, the numbers are not exact. You have to use some judgment, and sometimes you use a combination of tests and markers to sort of push you one way or another in terms of your interpretation about where this patient is on the scale. But uh, at least if someone's talking about it and they tell you, oh, the patient on transient elastography had uh, 17 kilopascal stiffness, you would probably come away and say, oh yeah, that patient's cirrhotic. A related method is MR elastography. Anyone here have access to this? Okay, so this is a lot less common. It was originally developed at the Mayo Clinic, and, uh, and it's similar, it uses jiggle, but then it uses an MR methodology to look at the whole liver rather than just a little cut of the liver. So for that reason, it's considered to be a, more accurate than the sound, direct sound-based uh, methods that uh, are in more common use. The problem with this is that only a few centers in the country have the software and when they do it, they charge about $3,000 a test. And so we do not yet have this in my institution, and uh, we've been on the forefront of, of evaluating liver fibrosis for 20-something years, but we don't do it. Our radiologists never thought that this was something that the institution should invest in. There's also proprietary tests, and the most common one used in the U.S. is called FibroSure, which came from a European test called FibroTest. And that test is very good at distinguishing very mild fibrosis from cirrhosis up here. But you can see that in the middle ranges of Medivir stages, it's actually, there's a lot of overlap. You sort of know you're in the middle but you don't know exactly where in the middle. 
and you can see that in the overall interpretation that's provided by the manufacturer of these tests, you could make the test more specific but less sensitive by increasing the cutoff numbers at 0.8. Almost everyone has cirrhosis. Uh, and you get a number, basically, that's zero to one, and someplace along that scale is related to how likely this patient has cirrhosis or advanced fibrosis. The easiest one to use is, and most accurate of the non-proprietary tests, is FIB4. How many of you use FIB4? One. Okay, a few of you are nodding your heads. So, so in these tests, you're using simple information from routine lab tests. And the most common tests used are FIB4, APRI, and something called AAR, the uh, AST to ALT ratio. Um, but of those three, FIB4 is the most accurate and doesn't really require any more information overall other than the platelet count uh, compared to the AAR and the age compared to APRI. And so this is the test you should use. You don't need to be a math genius and do the formula because there's an app for it. You just go on, on uh, the internet and you say FIB4 calculator and you get a number. And so uh, if it's less than 1.45, the patient has no or very mild disease, F0, F1. And if it's greater than 3.25, you could feel moderately confident that the patient has advanced fibrosis, F3 or F4. And if it's someplace in between those two, that's probably where they're at, someplace in the middle between F1 and F2-ish. This just shows you the, the errors that arise in the middle on all the non-invasive tests. That's the problem. They're all very good at either end of the spectrum, probably 80% or better. You might see a question like that on your uh, post-test. But, but in the middle, they don't do so well. When a patient gets hepatitis C, they progress. And that progression can occur slowly or it can occur quickly based on a variety of cofactors. And so when you see someone at a given moment in time, it's hard to know. You can't tell from a single moment in time if they're a slow progressor or a fast progressor. There are patients that get infected and 50 years later still have almost no scarring in their liver. And there's a classic cohort of, uh, of women in Ireland who got Rogam many years ago, which was infected with hepatitis C, and many of those progressed very, very slowly. And then there are other patients that in as short as, as 10 to 15 years will progress to cirrhosis. And factors that are associated with that are having HIV, being male, being overweight, having other metabolic diseases. Here's just a, one example. This is a study that looked at patients with very mild fibrosis with HCV, HIV co-infection. And because they had mild fibrosis at a time before 
good treatments were available, they decided not to treat them. They decided to biopsy them a few years later. And when those patients were biopsied, almost three years later, 25% had progressed at least two stages. So a quarter of the patients will progress forward in liver fibrosis at least two stages with, with usually untreated HIV infection. Treating HIV infection slows progression of liver disease. So people often ask, what do I do in someone with co-infection? Generally, the first thing you do is you try and get the HIV under control because that has a huge effect on rates of fibrotic progression. Now, if you have FibroScan in recent years, you also have a measurement called CAP. CAP, or controlled attenuation parameter, is a measure of fat in the liver. And you might say, what's that got to do with anything? Well, fat is an important cofactor for liver disease. And this is what fat in the liver looks like. The fat globules enter hepatocytes. They squeeze the hepatocyte uh, cytoplasms and squash off the nucleus. And they make those cells more fragile. They turn over more quickly. And we see increased rates of hepatocyte or liver cell death. So for those of you that do have CAP, we have cutoffs of, of fat scores, and again, we have stages, 0, 1, 2, 3 of fat scores that you can use as a marker for saying this patient has mild, moderate, or severe steatosis or fat in their liver. Why is that important? Because the more severe stages are associated with development of this blue stuff, which remember, blue is scar, and this is a special type of scar that we see with fat. It's called chicken wire fibrosis because it looks like what chicken coops generally are made of. Um, and uh, so, so it's a scar pattern that is unique to fat and alcohol. And it's different than what we see in hepatitis C. But over time, we still see this development of liver lobules surrounded by scar, and that is cirrhosis. And there's scoring systems for this too, and they're different than the ones I showed you before. You don't need to know the scoring system. You just need to know that there are scoring systems because sometimes a pathologist will tell you that if for some reason you had a liver biopsy. Okay, so let's talk about complications of cirrhosis in the next few minutes. Over time, patients will develop cirrhosis if they have untreated hep C. And I kind of think of this as the disease hep C has two clocks. The first clock takes you from infection and development of fibrosis down a path over several years to cirrhosis eventually. And then the second clock starts. There's a brand new clock. And that clock says, when does my patient develop liver cancer or decompensate? Liver cancer will develop at a rate in cirrhotics of about 1% per year. Decompensation will occur at a rate of 5 to 6% per year. So if 
patients want to know their prognosis, which they always do, then you could tell them if you think they have advanced fibrosis or are cirrhotic, you could say your second clock has started and I can't tell you exactly how you're going to do, but you, have, you are compensated today and in 10 years, 40 to 50% of people like you are probably going to be decompensated. The third clock is decompensated disease. Once you have decompensated disease, 50% are dead or transplanted within three years. So these clocks accelerate too. The first clock to cirrhosis could be as long as 30, 40 years. The second clock, half the people will be cirrhotic in 10 years. The third clock, 50% dead or transplanted in three years. What is decompensation? It is the appearance of any one of these things. Patient has ascites, which itself could be complicated by hepatorenal syndrome, hepatic hydrothorax or fluid filling up in the lung spaces, or development of bacterial peritonitis. Hepatic encephalopathy, bleeding varices, not just having varices in the esophagus, but bleeding varices, or a coagulopathy defined as either a PT greater than three seconds or over control, or Again, there's not an exact answer here. Hepatologists have great arguments over this, whether it's an INR of 1.5 or 1.7. This is why we also wear ties, because we argue over things like that. Um, and uh, so if you have a patient with any of those things, that's a patient with decompensated disease. And for all of you in this room, because I didn't hear anyone say they were a hepatologist. The answer at that moment is, I need a hepatologist. Many of you may be familiar with what's called the Child's Pew Score. This is a scoring system that is used to stage patients with cirrhosis. So once a patient is cirrhotic, we talk about whether there are childs, A, B, or C, based on this point scale, looking at, at bilirubin, albumin, the INR, PT, encephalopathy, and ascites. Why is that important for you? Because, because there are some drugs that cannot be used for treatment of hep C if you're beyond childs A. And so if you have a cirrhotic patient and you're trying to decide whether to treat them, the drugs you use matter, and again, you probably shouldn't be treating someone that is any place beyond a child's day. The other word you need to know is MELD. MELD is the, the model of end-stage liver disease. This is another smartphone-based scoring system. When we see patients in our clinic, every patient gets a MELD score calculated at every visit and particularly if they're cirrhotic. It consists of the bilirubin, creatinine, and INR, and it predicts the mortality from liver disease and the timing and eligibility for liver transplantation. So here's an example. You might look at these numbers and say, ah, they're not so bad. The creatinine's a little elevated at 1.6. The bilirubin's 1.4. 
the INR is 1.6. So that one's kind of getting up there a little bit. The calculated MELD for that patient is 17, and that patient's three months mortality rate is 18%. That's a really high mortality rate in the next 90 days. That patient doesn't look sick when they're sitting in your office, and that's why we need to know MELD scores because they're a sensitive predictor of mortality and also where are we in this disease and what do we do next? When MELDs start to rise, that patient's going downhill and will tip over very soon. If they're looking still good at a MELD of 17, they're probably going to be a MELD of 22 in a few months. When you refer to, for transplantation, any sign of hepatic decompensation, ascites encephalopathy, bleeding, MELD greater than 10, normal is 6 or 7 in the general population, or any suggestion that the patient has a liver cancer, a hepatocellular carcinoma. So when do we look for that? Well, in any patient with advanced fibrosis, which goes back to why do we care what the stage of disease is, particularly with these new drugs that treat cirrhotics almost as well as they treat non-cirrhotic patients. It's because the game has changed. How you manage that patient is different. These patients need ultrasound every six months, keeping in mind that ultrasound is very subjective and experience of who does the ultrasound matters. For that reason, although the official guidelines, the ASLD, say you don't need to do a test called alpha-fetoprotein or AFP, we, most hepatologists, actually recommend that you do that in all advanced fibrosis cirrhosis patients because a climbing AFP is an indication that something's going on and maybe you shouldn't trust your ultrasound and you go to the next level of testing in those patients, which is generally an MRI or a multiphasic CT scan. More about that later. So in summary, hepatitis C is also a liver disease. It's not just an infectious disease. And when you see a patient one of your primary questions should be, is advanced fibrosis present in this patient that's sitting before me today? And if yes, then you need to get that patient to the next stage of care as you think about treating their hep C, which means an EGD for evaluation of varices, an ultrasound to look for ascites, and at the same time, you're going to get the HCC screening, which is the same ultrasound. So you wrap all this up with two tests, keeping in mind that, that you may need to be doing uh, these studies long-term, varices on varying schedules, which we can talk about later, and ultrasound every six months. And contact your hepatologist early with any sign of decompensation present. Now, you might say, well, I don't have a hepatologist. I live in a small community. Um, and that probably is true. I just, there's actually only a hundred, I just found this out yesterday, there's 177 
board-certified hepatologists in the United States. That's it. And there's others that do pure hepatology that are not board-certified, but that's about another 80. So, so most of those people, if you can find your center, find your site, will take phone calls and discuss patients and, and don't feel shy and nervous and worried about talking about it because, frankly, I can speak for all of us, we'd rather hear about these patients too early and say, yeah, that's great. You know what, I think you're okay. Go ahead and do this or do that. Or, you know, let's stop. Let's, let's think how we approach that. But getting the advice early helps. Most of you, it sounded like, are from the Alabama area. You have a great liver center at UAB. Give them a call. And I'll stop there. Yeah, advanced, advanced fibrosis. And it's because of, I mean, what we're worried about are the cirrhotics. But the, because of what I showed you, we can't always tell the, the pure, absolutely this is a cirrhotic from maybe they're not. So we sort of lumped that together, the F3, F4, into advanced fibrosis. So once you determine that, you're saying they need a liver ultrasound every six months to evaluate for cancer and for ascites. Yes. And they need an EGD how often? Well, the schedule is you do generally, so it gets a little more complicated. At least once, I like to think at least once. If they have no varices and you cure their hep C, you're probably done. If they have it, varices but they're not bleeding. If they have varices but they're not bleeding, that person is going to go into a repeat schedule of every one to two years unless a decision is made by the hepatologist to put them on a beta blocker, in which case we still rescan, we do EGDs every three years. So, and if we find something that looks suspicious, we may actually increase that back to every six months to one year. So it's, you don't need to worry about that because once they're actually plugged into that, the person that's doing it will make that decision of when they want to see that person again. Well, in our, in our situation where we're treating patients with no insurance mm -hmm. and we don't have that option of the hepatology follow-up or the GI follow-up, we do have our charity care program. So assuming we can get them into that, I mean, our patients may have to pay out of pocket for the ultrasounds. I doubt they'd be able to do an EGD on that regular of a so basis. Most, but if, most of the state Medicaid programs do cover I'm just this. talking about the ones with no insurance. No insurance at all. Right. Yeah, that, that goes back to what Arthur was talking about, that the big problems are not, not can we cure hep C, it's how do we deal with all of these other social issues to get patients in care and uh, but and if we did get them an EGD and embarrasses were seen, would it be wise to go ahead and put them on the beta blocker ourselves? Um, not necessarily, because there are other issues you need to look at in the overall context of care of that patient. Beta blockers cause side effects as well. Is the patient diabetic? Will they develop hyperglycemic unawareness or hyperglycemic unawareness? Uh, what is their baseline heart rate? Do they have other cardiac conditions? It, it, it's not 
completely straightforward, and I think at least getting advice from the person who did the EGD would be a starting place in getting that question answered. Or call one of us. You can call me and ask that question. I'll give you my phone number, okay? a patient that had liver disease but not hep C with varices and they recommended for me to start the beta blocker so I did what they said they said with varices yes yeah okay um, but so you started it and that person now if they're tolerating the beta blocker and taking it should be good for at least three years okay is it time for a break Time for a break. Thank you.